0: The Next Round, a marketing inspiration podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Next Round, the AAR podcast about the transformation and marketing of some of the UK's most famous brands. I'm your host, Robin Charney. I've been working in marketing and digital for over 20 years, and now help other marketeers with their business challenges as the lead consultant for the ecosystem design practice here at AAR. Each episode is a fast-paced conversation with a super smart marketing leader sharing the story of their heritage brand. It's history, innovation, transformation, and most importantly, it's next round. Why heritage brands? Because their journeys are more interesting, richer, and more complex. And frankly, we've all got something to learn from them. In this episode, I chat to Mark Evans, Managing Director for Marketing and Digital at Direct Line Group. Hey, Mark. Welcome to the next round. Hey, Robin. Really happy to be here. Mark is responsible for brand, Communication, CRM, insight, digital, and data across the brand portfolio at Direct Line. He's got the whole enchilada. He is also exec sponsor for the BAME element of DLG's DI activity and sits on the board of the DLG Legal Services. Prior to Direct Line, Mark worked at HSBC, 118118, and Mars. Clearly, Mark is a man who does not need sleep because he also has several side hustles, including as non-exec director of Learn et al., an edtech business, chairman of the School of Marketing, chairman of the advertising association Front Foot, and co-host of the Oh, the Places Will Go web show. He also founded the Sprintathon, thon which has raised over £500,000 for Stand Up to Cancer. Mark, you certainly have a full plate. So let's jump right in. I'd love to hear a bit about how you got to be the MD for Marketing in Digital at Direct Line.
0: I'd say lots of happy accidents, in truth. Uh, As a boy, I grew up wanting to be a forensic scientist of all things. I did a degree in economics and was destined for banking, was made redundant before I'd even started, in fact, before I'd even set foot in the building, Uh, and then sort of careered into marketing, joined Mars, and then have been made redundant a further three times and have ended up in direct line about nine years ago. Um, So it's a bit of a windy journey. And then the MD thing was uh, a CEO transition, And I suppose I'd shown that I could uh, go up to that level and join to work for Penny about two years ago. But I mean, honestly, uh, not much of a plan, a bit of luck. I I say I've always landed jam side up along the way, Um, but I've loved my time in marketing. I think it's been a brilliant place to have a career, even if it was a happy accident.
1: Have these redundancies over the years brought you any kind of perspectives that you'd want to share? Because to me, I would think that would make you pretty either really resilient or really lucky, one of the two. (laughs)
0: Or well, both. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, being made redundant, they say, well, it's not a personal thing because it's the role. It's not the individual. Uh, yeah, that's rubbish. Because of course you take it personally when you have to go home and tell your eight-year-old daughter that uh, actually it's time to move on because the role at the company is is no longer there. And, and she says, ah, oh, so daddy, they just don't want you anymore. Is that right? You know, it's definitely a personal thing, but there's a gift. There's a silver lining, which is a forced pivot, as I call it, where you have to reevaluate what you enjoy what you're good at where you think your value is what you will do what you won't do and at each time as I said, i've said, landed jam up but not, not without quite a bit of work and consideration and uh, and so i wouldn't change a thing in fact and it does make you very resilient i think resilience is easy to get conceptually but it's only acquired through some form of difficulty and hardship
1: you definitely have to experience it to kind of have it don't you Exactly. So you talked about forced pivots, and I wanted to dig into that a bit, because the insurance industry, of which you are part, is definitely going through its own pivot, isn't it? I mean, talk about an area that's going through huge disruption and transformation. Can you talk to us a little bit about what's going on in the insurance space, and more importantly, how you're addressing that from a marketing point of view at Direct Line? Yeah, you're, you're spot on. I'll
0: be honest, as a boy, I didn't dream of growing up and working <laughs> in insurance. I didn't know, honestly. That's no. uh, my guilty secret out now. But the reality is I didn't know what I didn't know, which mm. is that who'd have thought that insurance, whilst very complex, very competitive and very highly regulated, is also uh, ripe for disruption. It's right at the heart of all the major tech trends, in fact, connected mm. homes, driverless cars, electric vehicles, blockchain AI, machine learning, data analytics, you name it. You know, It is a data industry which makes it highly ripe for technological disruption even before you get to insure tech, fintech, and indeed, let's be clear, the changing nature of risk in the world. It's probably fair to say that the world in some sense is getting riskier. Some of that is because with human evolution, there's more to lose. The nature of risks around a pandemic have changed. So it's very fluid, if not volatile. So it is very interesting. For us as a legacy business, we've had to really wake up to this and um, think about how we very deliberately become more innovative. Hmm. And I would say it's a work in progress, but inherent to that is our move to a full-fat, agile operating model, a la Spotify or or a version of it, and really getting ourselves fit for the future, despite the pandemic, uh, because it is definitely going to be disruptive and we want to be disruptor rather than
1: disrupted. Mm, Yes, we've had that theme throughout the series of podcasts, which is it's better to disrupt yourself than to wait for someone to come along and basically eat your lunch. So I'm really interested when you talk about Agile and your Agile transformation. And, you know, is that the whole business or is that marketing that's gone Agile? And, And what does that mean from a marketing point of view?
0: It is the whole business. That's actually slightly an exaggeration in that finance, risk, HR, remain as centralised support functions. And I think that's probably right. But everything else in terms of delivery, engineering, digital, um, the marketing lens, data, change management, all sit in chapters. We've got eight chapters and then resources federated out or embedded into uh, small squads that aggregate up to tribes. It is the classic Spotify model. Although whenever i speak to somebody from Spotify, they say, well, don't do it like we did it. But anyway, a version of that. And um, and, and the principles are uh, localised empowerment, small groups who've got their missions and have got the resources to deliver end-to-end change, really feel empowerment, but also ownership and accountability. We're only a year in, so we're still learning. But I think already there's evidence that it's probably helped us in some regards through the pandemic period and also provides us with a blueprint for that velocity of innovation that we know we're going to need.
1: So how can you be specific about what you've seen as benefits already in the first year from within the marketing team? You know, What are you seeing that's really working well? So for,
0: for marketing, it means that we do have probably about half the team that remains as a center of expertise where there's specialized resource that's in short supply and we just haven't got enough bums on seats to plonk people into squads and make the numbers work Mm -hmm. Um, but for the remainder it means that they are absolutely embedded in squads that own specific journeys or specific customer groups etc and the benefit there is that as part of that end-to-end process the customer and the marketing representation is embedded Mm -hmm. Uh, it means that The missions that we create and the the customer needs we're trying to meet comes through that marketing lens right from the outset. So having built up a marketing capability to a centralised entity, marketing slash digital, now the fact that that's emancipated across the whole organisation hopefully means that it gives us a a very tangible step to be even more customer centric. Um, So that's one. The second one is pace of delivery. So some of the things that we did in the pandemic, for example, spinning up a a refunds proposition, a mileage money back a true up on your mileage over the course of your annual policy, which didn't exist before. We did that in a matter of weeks. It would have taken us many months to have Mm. done that. So I think... Everyone says they're agile. And I don't disagree with that. But there's a difference between agile running really hard and agile basically using the methodology and the
1: mindsets, probably more important, of the Agile manifesto. Oh, totally agree. I mean, agile has become one of those words, those fat words that's just thrown around, which for a lot of people just means faster. And I'm not sure people have adopted it from a philosophy point of view so much as a speed and process point of view. So it's really interesting to hear how you're kind of proceeding with that journey and what you've learned so far. And the fact that you're only the first year in, I'm sure there are lots of lessons to be learned. I'm really curious about um, if you were giving another marketing leader one piece of advice about going agile, what would you tell them?
0: Well, actually, what I would tell them is more about what it means for them personally Mm. in terms of the context or concept of servant leadership. Because it's easy to say, yeah, I'm an empowering leader, of course I am, and therefore servant leadership is going to be a doddle. But actually it isn't because for a period of time, you're left constantly guessing about what distance or proximity you should have to other people, to teams, to processes. You know, am I connecting enough? Am I empowering enough? Am I using my experience enough? Am I guiding enough? You know, you could end up guessing a lot about how to be as a leader because you still want to be connected to know when to get in the way and get out of the way. Mm-hmm. But it is an extreme form of empowering leadership. And in my view, a very fine line between servant leadership and absent leadership. And that can feel quite unsettling, particularly in a virtual world. And so I think that's, you know, that's my biggest personal learning is it is it
1: is a completely different form of leadership. It must have been quite a journey of self-discovery, especially in an isolated work environment where you're not physically connected to people for over a year. I mean, my goodness, what a challenge. I could, I'm i just trying to conceptualize it. It's such a different way of working in such a different way of working, if you see what I mean in the last year. Yes. So very specifically, feeling inadequate or
0: um, self-doubt, like like everybody, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody who's not a sociopath or a narcissist, we all have imposter syndrome. And so to counteract the guessing, having to be quite sort of feedback heavy and be clear on the role or the hat you Mm -hmm. need to play in any given moment. Otherwise I could be
1: guessing wrong and being unhelpful rather than helpful. Yeah. And they're also learning how to be on the other side of that as well. So it's not just you changing, it's them changing at the same time. What a fascinating journey. I can't wait to hear how it all turns out as you move forward. Because now, with the move back to, I guess, hybrid working, what that's gonna bring as more challenges to it. So like, it doesn't sound like the journey's over. Switching gears, I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of Direct Line and kind of heritage, because you were the original disruptor brand, weren't you? Yeah, that's right. Direct insurance didn't exist
0: until Direct Line came along and created a completely different model, cutting out the middleman, very literally. Uh, extricating the broker from the process many people won't know that world but it ultimately was created by direct line mm. over time that model became more attracted to many and so many direct insurers came along and then price comparison websites came along so we're we, you know we've seen the, the chapters there but more broadly what you're talking to is brand heritage does count mm. we have to remember that creating connections with consumers through brands it's neuroscience really i mean it's stored memory structures that make people more available and more amenable. And stored memory structures take time and repetition. And big brands, therefore, have a natural advantage or an unfair advantage for direct line. It means that we are still probably the sort of de facto leader of the sector, even through the commoditization and the disintermediation we've seen. And now, very interestingly, full circle, Aviva recently went on to price comparison websites. They'll see an initial bump from that in a good way. But it means we are essentially last brand standing, Mm. which we think is tremendously important because we see the future of insurance. It's actually happened already in China just 10 years ahead. It is about fractionalization, modularization, personalization.
1: And do you have examples about how you've used your heritage in the last nine years, whether it be through product innovation or marketing propositions that you could only have done because you're a heritage brand? Again,
0: if a lot of this is... Uh, subconscious system one stuff you know basically that market leader mentality we used to talk about mars i think that's we've tried to exude that mm. i mean one thing i would say though is and it's a bit of a technical point but the very strong consideration for distinctive brand assets again working with their remote bass you know how to manage the optics around how your brand shows up who'd have thought that the phone you know an old-fashioned phone on wheels it seems almost sort of discordant with the world today, but actually it's still an incredibly important part of that memory recognition that we have. And we tinker with it at our peril. We have moved it on a bit, but not
1: wholesale because we recognize it's an important part of what drives memory. Absolutely. And you know, all the brands I've spoken to in, in the series over the last couple of years, you know, it's always going back into the history books, literally to kind of propel yourself forward. There's always something there that as a marketeer, you can take and kind of used to your advantage. It's fascinating, whether it be about values, whether it be about purpose, or whether it be about distinctive brand assets that, you know, you go back into the archives almost, and it's still relevant. Yeah, it's literally because there's still
0: memory structures that you can access. Uh, even a couple of years ago, after the communication changed more than five years, I remember being at a dinner party, talking about insurance as you do. And once <laughs> I got through the initial firewall, yeah, okay, so who do you work for? Direct line? Oh, yeah, yeah, direct line. I remember the advertising. that jingle hasn't been used in eons but it's still what's in people's brains it's like when uh, mars moved on from sponsoring the london marathon i think seven years later it was still known by the majority of uk population as the mars marathon rather than the flora marathon there's evidence that actually stored memory structures around brands last a lifetime not just a few years or even a decade
1: oh my goodness yes because they're they're associated to childhood and all kinds of you know we can get into all kinds of psychological discussion there but my goodness yes um fascinating absolutely fascinating i also want to talk to you a little bit about marketing function at direct line because it feels and i made a joke in the intro about having the whole enchilada but marketing doesn't often have comms and brand and data and digital and all the kind of you know ingredients to make the best pizza ever or the best enchilada ever i guess if i'm using my analogy still um was that the case when you joined or have you clawed back is not the right word, but marketing is going through its own transformation with market here is kind of, you know, so much of what we do in marketing has been parceled off over the years. And Mm. it feels like in the last couple of years, marketing is getting its arms around, you know, well, if you want me to drive growth for the business, then these are the ingredients I need to drive that growth. You know, I can't just be the quote unquote coloring in department. I can't just make the advertising. So I'd love to hear a bit about that journey and whether it's always been that way or it's been part of your vision for the marketing team. Yeah, personal preference would be pizza
0: over enchilada, but that's probably got it noted to, to, to the to the side. But um, <laughs> no, it wasn't all those way that way. Definitely I would characterize the function as a bit of a coloring in function back in the day. Mm-hmm. And I say even now, with all that we've done, and I even said this to Penny, our CEO, that my job is never done in terms of convincing the organisation that marketing is anything other than a colouring-in function. And she says, "No, no, no, you've covered that, haven't you?" I said, "No, no, the job is never done. It only takes a couple of changes at exec or non-exec level, and you can be back to square one." Um, it was quite a narrow function, and it's broadened out over time. And I, I would like to say, not because I've got particularly sharp elbows, but just because the case became compelling that one plus one equals three in terms of adding in customer experience, in terms of adding in insight, and in in terms of adding in data and analytics, and in time, the full digital services
1: function that we created, just because the synergies were compelling. Marketing is still seen as a bit of a black box, isn't it, by the board? The CFO just sees it as a spend. The rest of the C-suite are like, yeah, I know it's important, but I don't really know why.
0: I mean, it's a really good point. There's quite a clear distinction that CFOs tend to deal in the past. Mm make forward projections. Mm -hmm. Marketers tend to deal in the future around ambiguity and change and to some extent unknown variables. So there is a bit of oil and water there, but very interesting definition of trust from Rachel Botsman, global trust guru. She says that trust is a confident relationship with the unknown, which actually means that transparency is the enemy. Normally you'd think, oh, well, trust is synonymous with transparency. But actually if trust is a confident relationship with the unknown, it's that I know that marketing is going to show up with the best commercial interests for the company even if i don't fully understand or i'm not fully connected in or i don't see all the moving parts and i just think that's a little bit that's lost uh throwing in myriad kpis is almost the worst possible thing you can do because you get addicted to that flow rather than a completely different conversation which is based on trust
1: and it's fascinating because I'm going to go off onto a tangent here, but you know the role of the CMO or the senior leader on the marketing side has been taken off and put back on the board so many times in the last few years. You know organizations like mm. McDonald's, for example, you know eliminating the role and just reinstating it today. So yep. it's fascinating to see how the marketing function has gone through this crisis almost of confidence. Of you know we're, we're at the board level, we're at C-suite. No, we're not. We're the chief customer officer. We're the chief growth officer. The CFO has been the CFO for a hundred years. His job or her job does not change. <laughs> yeah. And our jobs um, have been redefined, redistributed and cut up into lots of little pieces and then brought back together. So I think we have a really hard challenge ahead of us to that point of trust, which is, you know, how do we make sure that we establish that trust? There, there, is a, there is a fine art in
0: that for CMOs because being the least trusted hmm. member of the C-suite and the lowest tenure member mm-hmm. of the C-suite in in repeatable studies... The tricky thing is getting through the survival phase in the first one or two years, Mm. getting some points on the board whilst also sowing the seeds for future, you know, like the long term marketing effectiveness capabilities that, you know, those things don't spring up overnight. It's a tough job coming in and and it's easy for me to say now with a bit of tenure, but you don't really get to the good stuff until a couple of years in. But many CMOs don't even get the chance to get to that because it's, uh, you know, in the case of, I think it was Gareth at at, at McDonald's, you know, Mm. they changed their mind before he'd even really got into a stride.
1: Yep. It's a risky role these days. And to that point of trust, I wanted to pivot and talk a little bit about creativity. And I'm just curious to get your point of view on the role for creativity in your marketing and and also a bit about, you've worked with that agency and most of your agencies for a long time. How does that impact the trust, but also the delivery of creativity to the marketing team? Well, my whole
0: career, I suppose, has been charted by big brands that take a a creative approach with great cut through and strong and compelling advertising of M and M's, Mars, Maltesers, um, in many cases with animated characters. Mm,
1: just
0: ask the Meerkat. <laughs> That's it, exactly. Um, bless them. Mm. So, so uh, but very specifically in terms of Direct Line and Sarchies. So, Direct Line was a brand in trouble actually in 2012, 13. We were really clear on what we needed to do, which was reposition to meet the unmet core category need, which was to be fixers, to get stuff fixed. Nobody had talked about that for donkeys. Everyone had fixated on price. And so we wrote a really great creative brief and ran a good process. Uh, But we had four agencies in at the end and three of them basically played back to us something quite benign. Um, they didn't realise how bold we really wanted to be. The brief said it, but they didn't believe it. Um, whereas Saatchi's uh, really embraced that brief. And it was it was a moment of creative genius. Paul Silburn in a lift after a chemistry session. I, I think I know what it means to be in insurance. It's like being an account director uh, or an account person in an agency. You need to get stuff done. In, in fact, it's a little bit like that Winston Wolfe character in Pulp Fiction. You know, he cleaned up Marvin's brains off the back of the Chevy okay it's not insurance but he made a really messy problem disappear and I think uh, Richard Huntington who was with him said um, yeah okay let's get back to that later let's just really let's get you know let's start (laughs) from start from the beginning Uh, but lo and behold sadly Paul has now passed away but that that idea endured all the way through to being on air pretty much well almost entirely unfettered so long may live that sort of creativity in our world
1: there are trends in our marketing community and one of them is around you know insourcing versus outsourcing what's the right blend of capabilities for a modern marketing ecosystem you know what should go where i always talk about marie kondo and you know what do you put in what box you use the word blend mm. i think that's about right really we're
0: not philosophically entrenched in any direction so we do have a fully blended model there's some things which are fully externalized we insource aspects of martech there's things that are fully fully in-house and then there's stuff in the middle. And I'll I take as an example, you know, our paid search, you know, we we spend a lot with Google because paid search is a big thing in our sector. We're not a sector where you could switch it off and think that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a hybrid model with Mediacom. Our marketing effectiveness, some of the heavy lifting on our econometrics is um, dealt with by Ubiquity. And again, but we have an in-house team. So I, I think there's sort of pros and cons. And the, the problem with, in housing things per se is that you you can become blind Mm. you lose you can lose some of that stimulus of what what others are doing what else is going on in the world whereas part of the role of agencies is that they have multiple clients multiple sectors multiple countries they see the changes that are happening and on the flip side to, to in-house everything as a philosophy and there's some that do that i mean the pepsi example was a great one wasn't it with the, the you know the advert that, <laughs> what not <that's>, to do <laughs> what not to do but you know again that's that
1: um that sort of blindness um mm. it's horses for courses 100%. We talk all the time about how you know an outside-in perspective is the most important driver for your business. We call it creative capital. That's, that's how we've termed it. Now I want to talk about your other four jobs, by the way. Um, when we spoke earlier, you said that you spend 50% of your time on what you call your side hustles. And I'm really interested to understand a bit about, A, how you do that, how that's perceived within the business. Because I think people listening will be, you know, really interested to hear how you balance those, but also how, you know, frankly, your boss doesn't look at you and go, Oi, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> so, so the side hustles thing, I don't know, I, I wouldn't put a number on it, but
0: maybe 10% of my time. Okay. Um, because it's very choiceful and time efficient stuff. But I do fundamentally believe in the value of side hustles and encourage people to have them, not to distract from your job. And that's the choosing well. So it's not very time-hungry things. Um, but I do believe ultimately side hustles make you better. Uh, they give you perspective. They give you breath, uh, breath. They give you energy when maybe it's it's flagging a bit. Um, sometimes it allows you to get your hands dirty. But ultimately you can pursue your passions and and give back and feel good about it. So I think there's so many benefits to uh, to having those other interests. Um, as I said, you know, you've got to be delicately balanced and be sure that the give and get is additive to your organisation. And in fact, I had the conversation with Penny a couple of years ago that you know, if you're not doing that as a senior leader, what are you doing? Because how are you getting your stimulus, your development, bringing the outside in and leading and developing others. And in Mars, it was, you know, the notion was leaders develop leaders.
1: I love that idea. So, you know, the podcast is called The Next Round and I want to talk a little bit about the future, I guess. So what's on the horizon for you personally and professionally at Direct Line? Well, all being well, we do have something to say
0: around the climate um, later in the year. Mm-hmm. I'm still still working on that, but hopefully that will be coming through. But actually, in truth, the big biggest priority is being ready for this new regulation in January, which is a good thing in terms of stopping price walking, where loyal customers are disadvantaged from a pricing point of view, um, which is going to create quite a disturbance. It will change the economics of the sector quite fundamentally. And then beyond that, the stretch into, as I said, meeting that broader set of needs, reappropriating the China model, essentially, Um, on the back of our Agile transformation. So lots of exciting things. We just launched a cyclist product, uh, which um, is very in tune with the China model in terms of a low price point entry uh, product to grow the franchise. Um, We've got a couple of other things that are going to be launching pretty soon. So I think in general, the pace of innovation to meet a broader set of needs is is probably the catchphrase.
1: That sounds amazing. And it's so nice to hear of marketing kind of owning those propositions it's heartening to see. And I think you're going to have an amazing second half to 2021. It sounds like you've got all the right elements for your, or all the right ingredients, I should say for your pizza and not enchilada. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave it there, but I'm going to uh, give Mark a huge thank you for coming on to the next round. I've really enjoyed chatting to you today. I think the direct line story is fascinating. I really can't wait to see what you guys do next.
0: Oh, absolute pleasure,
1: Robin. Hopefully, it's been uh, hopefully it's been helpful. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Next Round. I hope you found it as interesting as I did and can take some insights back to your own marketing. If you could rate and share this episode, it would really help others to find these great stories. I'd also love to carry on the conversation and hear what you think. We'll be sharing and chatting about it on LinkedIn and Twitter. The Next Round is brought to you by AAR the experts in marketing ecosystems. At AAR, we are a multidisciplined team of consultants who have strong and well-informed views on what brands need to do to overcome today's marketing challenges in order to better connect their businesses to their customers and drive growth. Thanks for listening and see you next time.